go down to Moody Beach most mornings, early in the morning, to walk up the hogs, and this is where a lot of the tourist accommodation is concentrated. Moody Beach is quite famous for the golden strip of the Cook Islands. And with every hotel closed, we're walking along this beach that's normally packed with um, tourists alone. This strip is just empty. Empty beaches mean empty hotels. Empty hotels mean no jobs. No jobs mean no income. And in the Cook Islands, that's most of the economy gone. At least 87%. We are in very serious uh, dire straits. There's deep, deep concern amongst the business sector that, you know, the government can't keep paying a wage subsidy to our workers. There's concern about, you know, the hundreds of foreign workers we have, what's going to happen to them when, when the government runs out of money to, to pay the subsidy. The needs in the islands are much more acute. My brother-in-law is a fishing uh, charter boat captain in Niue. He hasn't had a charter uh, except for a few of the local ones for three months. And when he doesn't go charter, he doesn't have an income. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, desperate times in the Pacific, how the region is looking for new, sometimes risky opportunities to claw its way back. Some of the Pacific countries are also back looking at things like deep sea mining, which is a real area of fraught debate. We'll hear more from journalist Florence Sime Buchanan on that empty beach in Rarotonga and from Colin Tukuitonga on the push for a Pacific travel bubble. But first, Johnny Blades is a reporter for RNZ Pacific. He's been looking at the impact of COVID-19 across the region. Particularly devastating for the Pacific countries is in the area of tourism, you know, you got countries such as Fiji, Cook Islands, Tahiti, uh, French Polynesia, that is, and Vanuatu, for instance, who are very dependent on tourism, which accounts for a large proportion of their GDP. So when you get something like that just knocked out, it's devastating. There's a lot of jobs that have gone and so much uncertainty. Fiji is the big one, isn't it? That's, that's the real hub for tourism in the Pacific. It's just parlayed into such a economic mother load for the country. There's about 40,000 jobs that have been affected and it's going to be probably a long-term thing too. Can you take me back to what exactly happened? New Zealand went into, into lockdown late March. Did a similar thing happen in the Pacific? Yeah, those country, countries sort of followed suit. Although some countries like Marshall Islands, it's a Micronesian country, closely affiliated with the United States. So that went into total lockdown, absolute border closures earlier than New Zealand and other countries. And I think that they were probably the, you know, had the tightest restrictions in the whole world. In terms of cases, as I said, not many, uh, there's, a, there's a number of countries which haven't got any confirmed cases. Mm. But then you've got countries like Papua New Guinea, you know, 8 million people. They appeared to only have a few for the first few months. And then just in the last two weeks, after having like nine registered cases, they've suddenly got over 60 because there's clearly a cluster in the capital, uh, Port Moresby. And because of the, the problems with testing, they you know, weren't able to get across that problem until now. And it, the crisis is really only just ramping up there now. And that's a big deal for Papua New Guinea. Uh, so they've just gone back into lockdown in the capital. Not many people in the capital had been adhering to the measures recommended, the social distancing, washing hands, mask wearing. Would that, that blow up in numbers 
have happened internally rather than someone coming into the country? Well, their first few cases were from people coming into the country, including some mine workers, because the mining's a big thing there. But unfortunately, what seems to have kicked off this latest um, surge is a bunch of health workers at the country's main hospital, Port Moresby General, including several workers in the central laboratory, which handles the testing, you know, the, the testing of samples, of testing for COVID. Uh, so those people have been infected, and there are a number of people related to them uh, among these new cases. So that's a real worry, and, you know, with these sort of overcrowded informal settlements that a lot of people live in in that city, the conditions are right for um, community transmission. What about the health system? How could it cope with something like that? Well, it's not likely to cope very well at all. They knew that well in advance, so there is you know, a degree of assistance from the World Health Organization in some countries, but uh, this is a big worry right now because the, the health system looks shortly due to be swamped if these cases continue to go up, which is what the Prime Minister, James Marape, has been warning about. Their main isolation facility has only a 72-bed capacity, and they've just almost exhausted that. And, and there's just not that many doctors and nurses. There's only like a few thousand nurses in Papua New Guinea, and it's a big country, you know. And so now we're moving into a phase um, of, I guess, recovery or how to how to handle the economy when when there's no tourism. Uh, and as you say, Fiji is one of the places that's been hardest hit, and there's been quite a big push to uh, open up some travel bubbles with Australia and New Zealand, but it's just not happening. There are some real practical issues at the moment. Our airports don't separate out individuals who we might be certain are COVID-free from those who are not, because when they arrive, there is no way to know for most of the passengers coming in. So we would need very strong physical barriers, different staff interacting with different groups, a number of practical things that would need to be in place. It's just not happening, or not now at least. I think everything's just in a holding pattern just to see how things pan out. That's not good enough for Pacific business operators who are facing collapse. I mean, I don't think that's an option. This is not hanging out for a post-COVID world, but rather to learn to live with the virus as best we can. I mean, everyone obviously is hoping that a safe, effective vaccine will will become available sooner rather than later. And that's clearly important and, and great if it happens. But we also got to anticipate that we may not have a safe, uh, effective vaccine. And how do we support small island nations to cope with the risk of a virus and, and open, relax their restrictions at the border? Colin Tukoi-Tonga is the Associate Dean for Pacific Programs at Auckland University's Medical School. He says Pacific countries just can't afford to wait around and it's time to get a bubble going, starting with the Cook Islands and Niue. If there was a, say, a, a New Zealand realm country's Cooks and UA bubble, that it's only people who originate out of Aotearoa, New Zealand, who can go up. Um, and, and somehow we've got to look carefully at the transit arrangements so that there's no contamination and that people don't come from the US and, and hop on the plane to Rarotonga. And that's what I understand is, is holding things up, is there's not full confidence in that transit arrangement. That's correct. But the point is, 
these are management issues to address. So, for example, you know, there's, uh, I think, some very good ideas about how to separate the people in transit from those who originate from New Zealand. In other words, if there is serious uh, interest in opening up a quarantine-free travel between New Zealand and Cooks and Niue, you then set about to make sure that your protocols are there to reduce or minimize, eliminate the risks of uh, COVID being introduced into the islands. Uh, I don't see it as a showstopper. In other words, you can manage it. Because so many of these islands are COVID-free, and of course they need to stay like that because they don't have the health systems to cope with any cases. That's correct, And, and I would agree with that entirely. The point I'm making is, and you never say never, because... As we've all seen, uh, places around the world have gone quiet, and then after you know several weeks, they get a new case. And even for us here in New Zealand, there's still a risk. So it's never risk-free. It's never zero. But the point is, we can minimise the risk. And I don't think we give enough credit to the health officials and the border officials in the Cooks and Niue. I mean. They went into lockdown and were able to successfully protect their islands uh, from from COVID. So that tells me that there, you know, there are protocols in place. Naturally, as a as a nation, we don't want to be responsible for introducing the virus into those islands, and we would want to verify that there is a tight and um, verifiable process to manage the border, that the islands can manage their case and isolate quickly and, and manage all that. In other, in other words, it's there, there has to be some work done to make sure that those protocols are in place. How would it be different? Because I have been to Niue a couple of times. It's very relaxed. Would that have to really tighten up? Tighten up, tighten up. And they have tightened up. I mean, ever since all of this has happened, there's still been a weekly flight to Niue with uh, limited numbers, I think some 26, because that's all they have, the quarantine capability. And they are able to get people off the plane and into a a vehicle and and out to the Maravai as the quarantine station. And they've had the, the, the facility there monitored by the police and security uh, and they haven't had any escapes uh, unlike uh, us here. So, you know, thinking this through, they don't actually need to be in, in tight uh, quarantine. We don't have any COVID here, right? Mm. So why would we quarantine people on arrival in New Abe? Yeah. And coming back the other way, there's no um, COVID-19 uh, in New Abe. So you wouldn't need to quarantine people. So it's really about having very tight restrictions in place at and the surveillance airport. surveillance and monitoring and surveillance, but not tight uh, quarantine. Because I imagine if people found out that uh, you can go to New York, but you have to be locked away for two weeks, I mean, why would you? But I, I don't think, I suppose my point has always been that we don't need to do that with New Zealand and, and New Air, New Zealand and the Cooks being COVID-free. And are you proposing that it should start with New Zealand and New Air, New Zealand and the Cooks? Any other islands, Tokelau, for example? Tokelau is a bit awkward because Tokelau, you have to go to Samoa and then hop on a boat, so it's logistically more challenging. Mm. A- and the volume of traffic uh, demands for traffic to and from Tokelau is not high. So for practical reasons, I, I wouldn't include Tokelau, but Samoa and Tonga... Uh, would be considerations if, of course, those nations uh, express a wish for 
some loosening of their of their borders. I know that Samoa has been particularly protective of their borders. I think we all learned uh, that, and understandably, uh, Samoa has been very nervous after the measles outbreak over there. Mm. But but I'm talking about nations that are COVID-free, uh, and and we've got to be particularly careful to verify that. Um, so not Fiji. Well, Fiji have has repeatedly requested a loosening of the borders and reported on their testing. But my view would be that if we were to do that, we would want to verify the testing uh, and the numbers that have been reported. Because Fiji's had um, cases, uh, I know they haven't had any for some extended period now. The problem with COVID, of course, uh, I think there was... Um, a nation that was without uh, cases for nearly two months and then reported a case. Yeah. That's the uncertain nature of, of it all. Well, that's right. So I guess, and that must be the worry for the government here is, you know, there's so much that is still not known about COVID. And it's, uh, I mean, it, as someone called it, it's a wicked, it's a wicked oh, infection. Yeah, no one is uh, denying that the uns unpredictability of it all and we still don't know about the natural history of the disease and even for us here with all our measures in place you you can never be certain that we won't get a cluster uh, you know a case with a cluster and as and you know provided we can isolate them and 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 trace and track and trace and and isolate uh, we should be able to maintain uh, and and stay on top of things mm. but it is quite uh, unpredictable and that's the nature of the virus and I think my, my colleagues in public health are probably, you know, people talk about post-COVID life um, there's probably not going to be a post-COVID life for an extended period and it's more a case of us learning to live with the virus as best we can We're hearing all these reports about how tough it's getting in these Pacific countries, and things are getting quite desperate too, yes, of aren't course. they? And, and uh, you know, businesses up against it, uh, they're never robust uh, in the first place. And, and several business leaders from the Cooks have said, look, we would rather uh, get the businesses uh, going again rather than relying on Wellington to, to hand out yet more aid. It's not what they want. The only safety valve for these small islands, of course, is many of them rely on a kind of a subsistence existence, and many of them grow their own crops and catch their own fish, which offsets some of the lost uh, economic and uh, business opportunity. But How are people coping? If they're not bringing home a weekly wage, a lot of them are in survival mode anyway, aren't they? Yeah, and many of them, as I say, would be planting and foraging and, and catching fish and sourcing their food from local resources. Many would be trying uh, different uh, business opportunities, but, but overall, it's not uh, New Zealand, so there isn't an endless, uh, it's not a big market, and there's not an endless opportunity to generate new and different businesses. And, and, and that's the reason why I think, uh, provided the checks are there for the, to manage the risks associated with the virus, I think the sooner we can enable businesses to get going again, the better for everyone. Fiji is hoping to entice tourists back to its sandy shores with new holiday packages. Fiji has been quite proactive, the most proactive, I would say, in the Pacific in terms of trying to get things started again for their tourism industry. The country says New Zealanders won't have to quarantine on arrival while food and accommodations will be slashed.
So they've introduced like this uh, VIP lanes kind of system where so they're accepting tourists now, but there's a quite a rigid testing criteria for for travellers coming in, and then there's a quarantine thing. But the quarantine essentially will be done by tourists in the resorts. So but, people are going there. I didn't realise that. Well, no, it's it's getting it's underway, but it's I understand it hasn't exactly been a roaring success yet. It's early days. There's also the Blue Lanes initiative, which is possibly better for their in terms of bringing in a bit of money quickly. That's for the super yachts and various vessels. So up at Denarau in Fiji and Nandi, they've got this Blue Lanes thing. So the boats are welcome to come back in now, and they've just started dribbling in. And what does that mean, the Blue Lane? That means that they are able to come in to uh, the port. They have to have not called in at any other port for like two weeks beforehand but they will sort of effectively serve uh, a quarantine period in and amongst the marina but they will have access to the marina and so forth it's done through the marina system but they will be able to enjoy the the waters of Fiji in the meantime. But if I wanted to go to Fiji right now I couldn't could I? I can't fly from New Zealand to Fiji. No that's right. But you possibly could get on a boat and do it. Oh, I see. Do you know see. anyone with a super yacht? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm not moving in the right circles. <laughs> but, and so in the meantime, all the hotels are still empty? Yeah, mainly so, mainly so. You know, that's, that's a, and that's the same in the Cook Islands and, and, you know, Vanuatu and Tahiti. Although I should say Tahiti has uh, actually, that's the other territory in the Pacific which is now accepting tourists. In their case, without quarantine requirements, there are there is a system where they have to, a traveller coming in, because they have a flight from Los Angeles, a regular flight, which is a worry in a yeah. way. If that seems not, to be a, yeah. taking a huge risk, doesn't it? What is behind uh, this decision? Um, desperation, uh, that's the bottom line. I mean, one in five people in French Polynesia have jobs related to tourism. Uh, recently, the intercontinental Moria had to close. Uh, they're, they're in dire straits. The, the government there is worried about social unrest. So that's only just started in the last uh, 10 days, two weeks. So we might have to keep an eye on that and see what cases might emerge you know that's that's the worry but French Polynesia's government was so intent to get tourism started again you know because it's so important to its uh, economy and that's the problem isn't it really Sharon and something like somewhere like Fiji the over-reliance on tourism for the economy has been exposed by the pandemic and you know the government just released a budget a huge budget with a record level of debt about a week or so ago and a lot of it is about incentivising the recovery for the tourism industry and there's, there's tax breaks for investors and operators in the tourism industry. But yet they used to have a very productive uh, sugarcane sector and then there's manufacturing and both those areas have just been left to kind of fester a little bit. So the new buzzword here is diversification. This is what the government has been touting. Um, that we need to diversify our economy and stop the over-reliance on tourism because our experience right now has shown us that <laughs> we can't afford to do that anymore. So um, agriculture, we need to get the protocols in place with New Zealand and Australia so that we can restart exporting produce to Australia and New Zealand. We used to export a lot of papaya, chilies, mangoes, avocados, pineapples, the other thing that uh, needs to be 
seriously looked at and what the Cook Islands opposition have been calling for is greater investment in our Financial Services Development Authority, mm. which controls and manages our offshore industries. The opposition is also calling for the government to revisit the um, long line and purseining contracts that are in place with the European Union, with Korea, China, and, and negotiating um, deals that are a lot more lucrative for the Cook Islands. But when you think about it, any of these industries, even exporting product, produce, that's not going to happen quickly either, is it? Well, it all depends how quickly they can get these protocols in place because our farmers are growing the produce because you must remember that they, before they, they were um, supplying you know, the tourism market. Well, that market's been removed now, so it means that there's produce available for export. All these countries are looking for, for new opportunities just in recent days. Cook Islands, Samoa, Tokelau, Niue have been connected to this submarine fiber optic cable, which, you know, you know, could open up all sorts of new avenues of digital finance, you know, the way people do business and digital education. You know, this is digital advance that they haven't had. Faster internet speeds, telecommunications opening up. It might be something for e-solutions for agriculture, the use of drones, satellite imagery. And the other thing is new opportunities. Sometimes they come with risk, and I note that some of the Pacific countries are also back looking at things like deep sea mining, which is a real sort of area of fraught debate over a number of years in the Pacific Islands. But I think there's about four countries, Tonga, Kiribati, Nauru, and the Cook Islands, who uh, have given exploration licenses to uh, one or two companies to look at the seabed for these polymetallic nodules that they're saying are going to be crucial for batteries for electric vehicles and and you know the companies pushing these things are saying we need these these nodules because they they will help us with the transition to a carbon free you know economy and this is going to help you with climate change so they're touting this stuff to some of these pacific island governments who a number of them are keen again you know if they've given out these licenses that means they're seriously looking at it uh, the trouble is that, you know, they've been promised that there are going to be benefits, economic benefits and jobs for their people, but that's not what happened in the case of uh, Papua New Guinea, which invested quite a bit with the Canadian company Nautilus Minerals a few years back, which was going to start the world's first seabed mining project up in the Bismarck Sea. But that never took off. Papua New Guinea lost a lot of money. And now that same company has sort of renamed itself and is the one with some of these exploration licenses. Back in Rarotonga, there is an upside to the empty beach. Having this brief time to have Rarotonga to ourselves has, has been really nice for the locals and letting Rarotonga take a break to recover from the stress of having so many tourists each year. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Johnny Blades, Florence Sime Buchanan, Colin Tukoi Tonga. Kaikite anō.